it's always such a wonderful blessing to sing and study the Word together. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We've come to the part of Matthew 18 that Matthew 18 is sort of known for, and that is the exciting, thrilling study of church discipline. I know you all came this morning asking this question, what does the Bible say about church discipline? I really want to know. Well, it's your lucky day. I do want to say this, if you are visiting with us, if you're new to our church, or perhaps you may not even be a Christian, but you're not a part of our church, uh, my hope is that you would see, get a peek on how much we love each other as a church family. That's what this passage really is all about. It's about how we love each other and how we lovingly try to rescue one another from destructive lifestyles of sin. And that's the whole objective of church discipline. It is to help one another and to love one another. It's, it's not to embarrass anybody or to humiliate anybody. It is to call one another back, to rescue one another back from destructive lifestyles, from sin. And uh, hopefully you can see that love and that kind of love one for another would draw you to the gospel of Jesus Christ, or all you perhaps even to our church, uh, to make that kind of covenant with the church body here. Jesus is going to be talking about a local church body here and how we deal with uh, sheep that are going astray and how we deal with sheep that are sinning and falling away. How do we work lovingly with those fellow children? And my prayer is that you'd see that and be drawn to the love of Christ and the covenant of a local church body. Well, many of you believers, even people in our church, have heard of church discipline, but maybe you're not familiar with the way the Bible presents it, and so that's what we're going to be looking at today. This should be valuable for all of us. Just to remind you, the context of this entire chapter is Christians as children. You'll remember Jesus takes a child at the beginning of chapter 18 and sets a child on his lap. And this entire chapter is... Jesus teaching some lessons about the church, about a local body of believers and, and how Christians relate with one another in that local body. And on his lap there, as the word picture, is a child. And I mentioned last week, the rest of this chapter is about my third point that I made last week, and that is about rescuing one another. When another believer in our church is falling away, is sinning, do we just let people fall through the cracks? Do we just say, you know... Uh, we tried, and they're not that interested, so let's just let them go? Or do we somehow lovingly reach out to them and call them back to pursue holiness and live up to the covenant and the promises they made, uh, not only to Christ, but also to the body of Christ? Well, how do we do this? Let's read Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. I'm just going to read the rest of the chapter because this gives us the, uh, the whole picture of how we lovingly call one another to repentance. And I just want to say this, and, and it should be uh, extremely obvious by now, that a church is not a collection of people who believe they're holier than anybody. A church is a collection of people who desire to turn away from sin and be repentant. It's not a collection of sinless people. It's a collection of people who want to be like Jesus Christ. I know there's plenty of hypocrites. There's plenty of people in church and outside of church who are holier than thou. But that's not the objective of church, that we all together pursue the holiness that Christ calls us to. So just keep that in mind, that objective in mind. I'll mention it a little bit further down as we study this. But keep that in mind as we read the rest of Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
But if it is not listened, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Really, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. But where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And as in anger, his, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of God. When I was a boy, I think I was a teenager, it was uh, in my dad's church, a pastor of a pretty large church at the time. He did something pretty shocking and unusual one Sunday morning. He named the name of... Uh, the father of one of my friends, and I believe this man was, was pretty uh, heavily influential in the church. I think he might have been a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, and he's pretty influential in the church. I might have named him and said, after months of pleading with this man to repent of some infidelity in his marriage, this man continued to refuse, and therefore the church had to remove him. My dad actually read part of this passage and called upon the church to remove this man from our fellowship. Well, this was startling and bizarre and embarrassing, I think especially for that man's family. For one thing, I, I thought, I'm sitting there, I thought, man, the church is a place of inclusiveness, is a place of, you're not supposed to do this kind of thing, embarrass people and call out sin publicly. It's supposed to be a place of acceptance. I mean, his poor family hearing all this. And I also thought, man, people are going to be pretty scared now. I mean, they're going to walk around wondering if their sin is going to be called out and they're going to be kicked out of the church in front of everybody. Well, what I didn't realize, even though my dad read the passage, this very passage to us, is that the church is made up of children of God. We're all children. And when one of our fellow children falls away, when they get sucked into sin, we don't just 
move on. We are to call them to holiness and righteousness. We're to reach out in love and try to convince them to do what's right. We're to rescue them. In this passage, Jesus shows us how we are to rescue one another from sin, how we are to reach out and lovingly call people to sin. This is what we want to draw from the text, this pattern of how we are to call one another from their uh, state of being astray from God, astray from the church, and call them back. We don't let people fall through the cracks if they are covenanted with our community. Well, as I look at this passage, I see five things... And this will take us a couple of weeks spread over this time and next time. Let me say another brief word of of introduction. In this study of church discipline, we have this subject, church discipline. Theologians break it down basically into two types of church discipline. There are two types of church discipline, and and you do two types of church discipline, not church discipline, but discipline with your kids. If you're a parent, there are two types of discipline. You can think about it this way. There is formative church discipline. This comes before the sin is committed, right? There's warnings. You tell your child, don't go out of the street. It's very dangerous. That's not a good place for you to be. That's formative. In terms of church discipline, I stand up here and I do church discipline every single week. I tell you attitudes that you shouldn't have. I tell you things you should not be pursuing. I tell you about sins that you should not be involved in. I I do a, a form of church discipline. And this happens not just from this pulpit, but in every Bible study. Every time you open the Bible, there's a sense in which we are confronted with our sin. We're called to repent. We're called to flee sin and run towards God. That's formative church discipline. That comes before the sin is committed. Corrective church discipline is when a person is being drawn away in sin. They haven't repented. They're living in sin. They're running away from God. They're doing things that they know are wrong And this is when you have to run out into the street as your child is out there, even though you've told them not to go out there, and you grab the child. And perhaps there's a little bit of discipline involved. And you have to explain to them. And it's not out of hatred or being mean to that child. It's out of love. You you want to preserve their life. You want to uh, keep them from dangerous things. Now, this passage is about corrective church discipline. It's about when a fellow Christian is being drawn away by sin particularly a Christian that's in your church body and you have a responsibility inside your covenant group of people, the, the, the members of this church, we have a responsibility to one another. We have, in essence, we have an authority over one another to, to call one another back away from sin and back towards God. And I would just mention that is a, a big limiter to this discussion here. We're talking about people who are official members of a local church. We, we don't do church discipline on non-Christians, right? We don't call them out in that sense. We may call out evil things that happen in our society, but we have no jurisdiction over them. We have no authority over people outside our church. It's just people who've made certain promises to one another here in this church body. Now, those are the ones whom we're concerned about. Those are the ones whom I will answer to God for. And all the pastors here will stand before God one day and answer for the membership of this church. We don't do that. It's not even our jurisdiction to call out other Christians or discipline other Christians if they're not in this church. Again, we may not like some things they're doing, but we're not uh, not given authority over those those Christians. 
This is all about people who are involved in church. And this is when Jesus first introduces this idea that there would be this local body of believers who are covenanted with one another to pursue Christ. They've professed Christ, and now they're pursuing Christ with one another, and they're not to let each other go astray. We're to lovingly reach out to one another and bring them back into fellowship. It's interesting to me that you have all kinds of associations and clubs and societies here on earth, and everyone seems to be perfectly fine with these organizations having standards for membership and even kicking people out if they don't live up to those uh, standards. But for some reason, when we think of church, a lot of people think it's very mean for a church to have any kind of standards, just let everybody do everything what they want and never do anything. Maybe they feel that grace and kindness demands that we do nothing when others sin. Well, Jesus says it's the very opposite. Love demands that you go after these people, that you love them enough to help them and to bless them by correcting them and disciplining them and bringing them back into the safety of the fold. Now, one more thing, and we'll jump into Jesus' words. What we have before us is indeed a template for how we uh, reach out to these children who are going astray. In verse 15, Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, and certainly that is the most obvious way that you and I would see sin in another believer. It's when someone's actually sinned against us. Uh, There's all kinds of sin that happens uh, in this church family every single day, every single week. There's all kinds of sin, but when it's most obvious to us is when when it hurts us, right? When it happens to us, or perhaps even we're doing our own sin. So, Uh, Jesus picks the most obvious thing, but what we see throughout the rest of the New Testament is this becomes a sort of template or pattern for how we reach out to others who are in sin, not just brothers or sisters who sin against us, but most who sin. This is sort of a pattern. We see this in 1 Corinthians, for instance. There was some adultery going on, on, and Paul encouraged the people to confront the, the man who was sinning and if necessary, to remove him from the fellowship, to remove him from the church. They did it. A lot of people agree that in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 7, it's apparent that that man was removed from the church, but then became repented, and Paul says, you need to let this brother back in. The whole objective is to bring this brother back in. Don't just leave him outside of the church once you remove him. The whole idea is that you bring him back in into the love community of the church. We also see a bit of this pattern in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, This is how you discipline elders. They are to live up to a a standard that is greater, there's greater accountability. And uh, so there's a little bit of a nuance, a little bit of a change there, particularly when it comes to how you confront him and then how you speak of him. There is supposed to be a public renunciation. When this man is occupying the pulpit, he's teaching, he's leading an influence in an influential way in the church. There is supposed to be a very public uh, disowning if that man refuses or woman refuses to repent. I had to do that one time since we've been here. All right, let's get into this. As I said, I've enumerated from Jesus' words five basic steps of how we call in a loving way, how we call our brothers and sisters back to the flock if they're in sin. You may want to write these down. First of all, speak with them alone. Speak with them alone. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Sometimes when people first hear this idea of church discipline, they're really turned off. They don't like this idea that we're going to go after one another. But we're going to go after one another with the objective of gaining a brother. That's the whole objective, and the objective is not public humiliation. The objective is not to stand up in front of a church and announce sin and all this stuff. The objective is to have this one minor conversation and as a brother or sister, we want you back in the fold. It's to be a, a, a very circumspect, a very private conversation. It's supposed to be something that is not publicized. It's not about embarrassing someone or humiliating someone or making something public catching someone red-handed and it's in. It's not about deterrence. It's not about manipulating the church and saying, if you don't live this way, we're going to call your name out. That's not the objective. The objective is to gain a brother. There may be some level of deterrence there, but that's not the objective. The objective is to call this brother. And so it starts in a very personal, very intimate way, a way in which that brother or sister's reputation would be completely protected in the church. This verse demonstrates it's not about humiliation. It's not about manipulation. The purpose here is to uphold that reputation by not spreading the news of this person's sin to anyone. I said this a week ago. If you don't want to talk to someone who's failing in terms of sin, your only other option is to be quiet about it. You you don't have any authority unless you go to that person alone and talk to them about it. You have no authority to talk about it to anyone not your friends, not your family, not your family group, not your spouse. You keep completely quiet about this. Now, that's not to say in an effort to speak to someone, you might not gain advice. Sometimes people come to us in sort of a generic way, maybe without naming names or specific situations. They ask for, how can I say these things? And pastors help us, you know, work through this. And we've done this many, many times. But don't you use that as an excuse to gossip about one another. We are to love one another and protect one another. And if we see sin in another person's life, we're not to talk to others about it at all. We're to go to them alone. Now, there's a couple of nuances in this first step, not really exceptions, but uh, nuances to this step of going to a person alone. The first nuance would be sometimes we elders have discovered a sin that impacts ministry in a big way. So there's a sense in which sometimes we come across a sin that someone's committing, and that particular person is extremely influential in the church. And it, and it, it takes an amount of wisdom and amount of manpower to, to figure out how it's going to be dealt with. That person, there's a sense in which that person, because of their major role in the church, that person has sinned against all the elders together because we have entrusted that person with a sense of responsibility. And so the sin is not just against one individual but against the, the leadership of the church But even then, I can promise you this, that information, that sin remains 1,000% locked down. We do not share it with anybody. It's funny, sometimes people come to us and they want to tell us about the sin of some other church member or whatever, and they oftentimes think that we pastors are just dumb bunnies. We don't know what's going on in the church, and they're here to inform us what's happening. And so many times we already know. In fact, we're, we're six months out ahead of them. They don't realize we know all that's been going on, even more than they know, and they're there to inform us. And we just kind of smile and say, well, you know, it'd be good for you to personally confront them and talk to them alone. We don't share with them that, hey, we already know this. It remains completely locked down because our objective in this first phase is to protect this person's reputation and quietly and in a private way confront that person, even if it's something that's done against a group of leaders 
of our church, we keep this completely locked down. We want to protect their reputation. Another nuance here would be for the sake of propriety. Sometimes it's not just um, as easy as, especially when you talk about male and female, or maybe there's children involved. It's not uh, a good thing to meet with someone alone, right? Sometimes you need to start at that second step just because it's not a very appropriate thing to meet somebody alone. Maybe there's some Again, maybe it's male, female, maybe it's including children, maybe there's a great deal of anger or accusation. Sometimes we see this with husbands and wives, and it's important to, 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 as best we can, protect reputations, but sometimes there needs to be others in the room. And I think that's what Paul is getting at in 1 Timothy chapter 5 when he talks about confronting elders for their sin. He, he mentions that it really starts at step two because it's not, it's not modest to come just harangue pastors with all these accusations. Uh, it's not the right way to do church order. In fa- instead, you come, you begin with two or three witnesses. He says in 1 Timothy 5:19, he says, uh, begin with the two or three witnesses. And again, I think he's speaking in terms of modesty. I think he's speaking in terms of proper order. I think he doesn't want the pastors to be constantly harangued by uh, an individual or individuals who might want to, to constantly impede their ministry. So there are nuances, what I'm saying is there are nuances of this first step, but the basic idea is there. We go to these people alone. Second part of verse 15 says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained a brother. It's abundantly clear there, the word listens, that just, oh, I heard you say this, but listens and responds accordingly. Oh man, I repent. I, I, I'm sorry. I don't want to do this sin. This is not something I, or maybe it's, this is something I struggle with. I need your help. And he sees that, he listens, he repents, and he's grateful that you've brought this to his attention. Now, I'm glad to report to you that about 75% of corrective church discipline ends right here. This thing, this church discipline thing, you guys know this. Those of you who have been here any length of time, we don't get up here every Sunday and give you a list of people that are sitting in the church. and We don't do this. Why? Because a lot of it ends right here in this phase of personal confrontation, personal uh, discipleship and discipline, which is essentially the same thing. Let me give you a couple of pieces of advice if this is going on and you're involved in this. One, if you're the person who's being confronted and you know now deep inside that that person's right or at least partially right, but you're struggling with it, you're struggling to see this in, I would just give you the advice, be humble, accept this, help them, help, ask them to help you understand the sin and how that sin is offensive and how you can grow away from it. Have the kind of humility to even ask for help if you need help in that respect. Don't just fumble and stumble back into the sin and be angry at the person who confronted you. Instead, show humility. If you're the person, another piece of advice, if you're doing the confronting, be patient, be kind, be understanding. Go in with a thought that perhaps you see it wrong, that you may not understand. Maybe you've missed something. Maybe you have information that you didn't have before that would help elucidate the issue. So this brings up a little application. How would you go about confronting a brother or sister? When you, when you see someone in sin, how do you go about confronting them? This is applicable, yes, inside the church, but this is some of this is just good people skills, right? You could apply this at work. You could apply this in your marriage. There's a lot of places you could apply this. When you see someone sinning, this is good advice, but I think as we look at the whole of Scripture, we see 
These things all sort of come into play, attitudes and actions and words and things that we can bring into the way in which we confront one another and a way in which we call a straying brother or sister back. Maybe you want to write this down. Number one, first, discern if it is indeed a sin. That's an important first step, right? Sometimes Christians go around confronting one another about their own personal opinions, about their own personal convictions that aren't stated clearly in Scripture. I've talked about this a lot, but, but sometimes people read Scripture and then they find a way to apply that passage in their life, though the way they apply it is not necessarily in Scripture, it's just the way they apply it. And they're mad at some other believer for not applying it the way they apply it. So, so check the Scripture. If you're going to go confront somebody, start out and just ask, is this really a sin? Is, is this really a sin? Is this something that they are really uh, following uh, a sin that's clearly stated in the Bible? Could I go to them and open the Bible and read a passage about sin that uh, they would clearly fall into? So before you go around confronting people, make sure that they're actually sinning. It's an actual sin. Uh, and that would include you can't judge their hearts, right? Sometimes uh, you have people who say, well, I walked into the room and, and I just felt this presence that they were not happy with me. Or they gave me a look. Or they give you this stuff that's not really sin. It's not really something that's very distinguishable. You can't really judge the hearts of people. Is this an actual sin? Is there evidence of that sin? And is that sin clearly uh, spoken about in Scripture. So don't just go around confronting everybody. First, make, make sure, discern if it is indeed a sin. Second, determine whether or not you're a hypocrite. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, why, how can you go and complain about the speck in someone else's eye when you have a log hanging out of your own eye? Don't go around confronting people if you're guilty of the exact same sin. So this is an, an activity, not so much of calling other people's out sin. It begins with an activity of looking at your own heart. Am, am I a failure in this area? Do I do these things as well? Am I guilty of these things as well? Perhaps as you look at this, you find out you do indeed have a log hanging out of your own eye. And you have no moral authority to go to this person and pick on them about their sin. Third, if you have determined it is sin and you have that moral authority, meaning you're not a hypocrite, as best you tell, go to that person as a friend, but with firmness. Go to them as a friend, not as an enemy, but go to them with firmness. Show them friendliness, demonstrate warmth. Like I said, maybe you want to say something like this, I may completely be missing this. I, I may have completely misunderstood you. Or I may have seen something that my eyes tricked me. I, I thought you did this. I just need help understanding here. Please help me understand. That's a good way to start the conversation rather than you're a sinner. You did this, this, and this. And let them have it. Go to them as a friend. But also go to them with firmness. firmness. Hey, I'm your friend. And if it's clear that it's a sin, they have sinned, you can say, are you out of your mind? You, you know, Christians can't do this. You know that this is what you and I are called to holiness. Brother, sister, I love you, and I, I, I want to help you out of this, but, but please don't continue to do this. This is a sin. This is something. So you can go to them as a friend with warrant, but you can also be pretty blunt. This is not good. You know this isn't healthy for you. And usually the person will say, yeah, yeah, I understand. Sometimes they don't fully understand. Sometimes it takes more... Uh, meetings. So that's another piece of advice. Repeat as needed. 
I don't think there's any kind of limit here. I don't think Jesus says, well, you go to them once, and that's the only chance they get. I think you can go to them again and again and again as it's necessary. Usually it does take several times for, especially if they're confused about their sin. Maybe they, don't, they didn't think it was a sin. Maybe it takes several meetings and opening Scripture and talking about these things, and, and sometimes some awkward moments happen and, and, and some tense moments happen. But over time, you go and you love on them and you show them again and again that, brother or sister, this is sin, and I just beg you to, to see what the Bible says about this, to acknowledge this. This is indeed sin. Finally, I would say let them know that you're following Matthew 18. Let them know that you're not just doing this because that sin bothered you or offended you or you saw it. Or You're there because you see all of us as a, as a church body, we all need this kind of love. I'm coming to you in, in the spirit of Matthew 18. I'm a fellow child of God. I would want you to do the same thing to me. I, I need help to flee sin and follow after Christ. And so I only come to you because I would want anybody else, including you, to do this to me. I come to you as a fellow child, as another sheep in the flock, begging you to see your sin and flee from it. Twenty-something years ago, I was at my first established church. I had planted a church and pastored that for a while, but I eventually ended up at at my first established church, was the pastor there, a very small church. And there were a couple fellows that came to my church uh, who were in seminary, so that meant they knew everything about church. And I noticed that they began to criticize me and the church. They would say, oh, it ought to be this way, and the Bible says this, and it needs to be like this. And they just sort of openly criticized what the church was doing, openly criticized me. They would do this. We had an old Baptist church. We had business meetings every month. Can you imagine? And uh, every month, you know, people would air their differences, and every month they would say something critical or just, just, just sort of negative. And so finally, I, I sat down with them, and I opened up Matthew chapter 18, and I read to them, like, this is what I'm trying to do, brothers. I just, there's, a, there's an attitude, there are words that betray that heart attitude, that you're, you're not happy, and you're frustrated, and you wish everybody would do things differently and according to what you think. And, and uh, you know, I just, I just asked you not to do this. This is, this is a sin. Well, one of the guys mocked me for saying this, and this is like, two criminals on the cross, right? He just mocked me and said, what are you talking about? That's not real sin. He left the church. I never have talked to him since. The other guy was broken. He was so thankful. In fact, this other fellow who's gone on to be a pastor of his own church calls me about once or two, every two or three years, and we talk a little bit, and he never fails to say at the end of the conversation, hey, John, I just want to thank you many, many years ago for you confronting that attitude in me. It changed my life back then. It changed the way I, I pastor, the way I think about church. And I'm so thankful that you took me aside and followed Matthew chapter 18. So let someone know, hey, I'm really trying to do the right thing here. I really am trying to follow what Matthew chapter 18. This whole process is here to glorify God. This whole process is to call us to what we, we committed ourselves to do, called, uh, to call one another to holiness, to call one another to, to unity and, and fellowship as a church body. Now, this is the very definition of the word church. The word church means called out, assembled ones. That's, it would be a group of people from a community who would gather together. The ecclesia originally was not uh, a church. It was people from a community who would gather together, the called out ones who would assemble. 
called out and assembled ones, a local group. These are ones who are called together in order to glorify God. We're called by this profession of faith. We have repented and we want to follow after Jesus and we commit to one another to help one another do this very thing. So in spite of the fact that few churches ever do church discipline or even speak of church discipline, it shouldn't be surprising to us when Jesus first mentions church, he talks about how we are to call one another who are going astray. We are to call back and rescue those who are not living up to that commitment to Christ and that commitment to the church. So that's step one. Speak to them alone. Step two is in verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Point two, speak with them with others. Speak with them, with others. Now, be very very careful. The prepositions here are very important. I didn't say speak about them to others. Speak with them, with others, or in the presence of others. By the way, you don't even need to give those others, whom you include, a heads up. You don't even have to say, let me summarize their sin to you. You just say, hey, can you meet with me, with this person for a moment? I'd like for a third party to come in and observe what's going on. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe they've, they're really repentant and I'm, I'm missing. Maybe you, you just need to come and, and testify to this. They're there to validate. Is this a sin or is this a difference of opinions or is this making a mountain out of a molehill? What are we doing here? And that's that third party. That's their objective. That's their purpose in being there. Is this person really unrepentant or belligerent and resisting uh, my, me asking them to repent of a sin? Or am I pressuring them to do something that has nothing to do with what Scripture says? Well, this idea, this process of involving these witnesses is derived from Deuteronomy chapter 19. This is Old Testament laws. Jesus, excuse me, as God gave Moses how the, uh, the people of Israel would be set up. Uh, one of the legal requirements is that they would have multiple uh, witnesses that would act like a jury. So Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, for any wrong, a connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, I want to make very clear, the idea is not that these people are witnesses to the actual crime. Okay, that would be a very terrible uh, judiciary system. People could go around and kill people so long as only one other person saw him. You have to have two people see me kill people. No, these are people who are acting like a jury. They're witnessing the confrontation. That's what they're witnessing. They're witnessing someone else lay out the evidence and say, here's the evidence of sin. People sin behind closed doors. People sin, they murder people all the time and cover up the evidence. And so this is sort of like a jury. And I'm asking these couple other people, or maybe perhaps even just one other person to come and, and hear the evidence that I lay out and hear the case I have against this sinning or erring brother or sister and to ensure that this is indeed legitimate. And if it is indeed legitimate, then it would go to a higher court in that Old Testament setup. So this is what Jesus is saying. When you invite someone to be a part of this, if, if someone doesn't listen to you after repeated times of going to them alone, bring someone else as, not again, not as a witness to their actual sin, 
but perhaps as someone just to see this as a third party and to see what indeed the evidence is and how that person responds to the call to repent of that sin. The witnesses were there to ensure justice and also to then apply the pressure if it's needed to call that person back to holiness. So the same principle here, Jesus draws from the Old Testament. He's applying to the church, though in a less sort of litigious way. If you have patiently and gently and in love warned a brother or sister of their sin, they refuse to repent, then bring someone as a witness. It ought to be a demonstration that they show no remorse, that they are not repentant. Well, that's about as far as we can get this week. If I opened up the next point, it would get far too deep for us right now. Uh, We couldn't finish in this hour. The key to all of this is to look back and see that child seated on Jesus' lap. We entered as children. We treat one another as children. We love them. We rescue them. We'll run out into the street and grab them. And it may not be a pleasant experience for a child, a brother or sister in Christ that's here in the church to be snatched up and yanked back out of the way, but that is what Jesus calls us to do, to call each other. Again, not because we're all holy and all perfect, but, but, but the standard by which we're a part of this group is that we're all trying to be repentant and broken over sin. That's the core attitude of a believer, not holier than thou, but broken for sin. And we call one another to be broken for their sin, and we do this as children speaking to children It's a positive pressure. I mean, the the church should be a positive peer pressure upon one another to be holy as God is holy, to to live righteously, to be repentant. The pressure ends up, we're going to see this, is either you're going to walk repentant according to what you've committed to and and publicly professed, or you can't be a part of us. And we, we don't do any kind of actual physical punishment like a fine or some kind of physical thing, but we say, you know, if you can't live up to these things then you can't be serious and you're calling yourself a Christian. You can't be someone who says, I'm a Christian, I'm a part of this body, if you cannot live up to the very things you've committed yourself to. Well, perhaps some of you have been convinced and encouraged. Maybe there's a wayward brother or sister who's astray whom you need to speak to. Perhaps you yourself are falling away. Maybe you even know, and maybe you have that thought. Maybe someone is going to know this or see this, and they're going to confront me. Perhaps you know of others who've been confronted, but all of us can be encouraged that we as a body of Christ should fight for holiness and we should rescue those who are falling away in love, reaching out to them and calling them back. Let's be encouraged to fight this fight of holiness together and represent the body of Christ in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today. We do pray that in love we would reach out to those who are straying, that we would reach out in a love for their relationship with you and love for the reputation of Christ in this world as the body of Christ. I know it's a strange thing, especially in the day of church growth and the day when churches are little more than business prospects, propositions. You would never do church discipline because you want as many people in. Lord, we live in a day that all it seems like churches want to do is be bigger and grow and have more money, but Lord, We want to be exactly what you tell us to be in Scripture. And here you tell us to treat one another as children. And that includes the hard part of calling children back who are falling away and who are going astray. 
Help us do this in love. Help us love one another in this way. It is a tough love. It's hard to do this. It's nerve-wracking. It's difficult. But, Lord, I pray that we would see the value of those difficult conversations. Knowing we, we, we would want them to do the same thing for us if we're in sin. Help us do this. And, Lord, I pray that for those who don't know you, perhaps those who have not yet repented and followed Christ and become a part of a body of believers who are committed to one another, I pray that they would see this love, and this love would call them to repentance. They'd see the kindness that you have given us, this body, to help one another, to love one another. And that kindness would call them to repentance. All of this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.